This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to another week. Can you believe we're this far along in our study? Um, This week we were studying Jacob and... um, So um, before I get into that, welcome to everyone who is listening to us um, in our early morning Bible study and our um, evening Bible study and anyone who's listening on the podcast. So um, welcome and good morning or evening as it is. Um, So this week, as I said, we were studying Jacob and wow, is it kind of hard to take the entire life of a patriarch and cram it into one week, right? Lots of passages, lots of different stories. Um, so there's no way, absolutely no way that I can cover all of them. But I've just tried to, to think about some of the people in these stories and to, um, to think about what it was like for them in some of their situations um, and how they related to each other. And, and we're really um, needing to remember, I think, in all of this, it's so easy to get um, just lost in the story and not remember that the whole point of why we're studying this is we're looking to find Jesus in Genesis. So um, hopefully, hopefully today we're going to be able to, to do that a little bit. So as we look at the story of Jacob, um, in some ways, I think he kind of makes us scratch our head a little bit and think, like, God, what were you thinking, right? <laughs> right? Um, this, this guy is not the kind of story, this is not the kind of person that would we expect to be the father of the Jewish nation, that he would be a patriarch. Um, and yet, at the same time, isn't that very encouraging? I remember the very first time that I learned that Israel meant, you know, that he, that he had to do with the fact that he was wrestling with God. That was just so encouraging to me to realize, like, that is so real. That is so raw. That is so how a faith journey actually is. It's not always um, easy. It's often a struggle. And so um, I, it's, it's just one of those things in the Bible that, that I love because it's so real and honest. And as we look at Jacob's situation for um, the family that he's born into. It's also kind of interesting that of the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we often really skip over Isaac. Um, And it's not that he's not important, but, and it's not that he doesn't have some things happen to him. He, you know, if you, if you look into his life story, he ends up repeating some of the very same situations that happened to his dad. Um, But after a certain point in time, he just kind of copes and um, in the rest of his life. And so, and we'll kind of take a look into maybe why that might be, that he seems to be, you know, is it like, is it like there's this trilogy, you know, you look at any trilogy and the middle movie is always the most boring one. You know, the Lord of the Rings, two towers, eh, who really cares? You know, we're just skipping over to wait till we can get to, you know, the end one. Um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily exactly the situation with Isaac, but, um, but we'll take just a little bit of a look at him. Jacob is born into this messy, messy kind of family. And 
people are primed to see him and his twin brother in opposition to each other since before they're even born. And isn't that interesting? Because when you think about it, um, this, this prophecy that said about them that there's these two brothers who will be nations in opposition to each other. And one is going to be stronger than the other and that the elder is going to rule the younger. It's something that... Um, are these two infants really realizing that they're going to be nations someday and that they're struggling over that? It's, it's something that... It's, it's true in the future. It is a prophecy that's true that it will be about them. But right then and there, as they are these innocent little babies, it's something that as people take this prophecy about them and they look at where they are um, in their mother's womb, you know, um, her having a difficult pregnancy, and as they're being born, that story about Jacob still holding on to his brother's heel, um, there are all of these identity markers that are projected onto them by their parents, by the people who are around them. And so even at birth, Jacob has this identity of being someone who is this, this grasper, this ambitious um, deceiver projected onto him. And I can't help but wonder what that must have been like for him as a young boy to have that projected onto him from when he was, you know, an infant. And sadly, Isaac and Rachel each have a favorite son. It's said that Jacob is a quiet man and that he's a man of the tents, which is a very intriguing kind of a phrase. But Esau is more physically vigorous. He's outdoorsy. He loves to hunt. And maybe it is that Isaac is drawn to Esau's strength out of the sort of, you know, masculine vanity of, that's my boy, you know, kind of a thing. But I also think that there are some interesting similarities between Isaac and Esau, even though um, there's also some differences. I think that there's one little story, one little snippet about Esau, that when he is, um, when Abraham's servant is coming back with Rebekah, his bride. It says that Isaac is walking through the fields meditating. And I almost wonder, this is, this is my little guess, I wonder if Isaac was the kind of person who responded to God best in nature. You know, seeing him walking through the fields and meditating, and then that's when all of a sudden the answer to his prayer comes. Now, I wonder if he sort of has this, that he responds to God best in nature. And the fact that his son, Esau, is an outdoorsy kind of guy. I wonder if he mistakenly thought that they had that in common. There's this almost theme um, of appetites and ambition when we look at Esau and um, Jacob. And Isaac and Esau have this, this um, theme of appetites in common. They both seem to prioritize their physical appetites, and it comes with a sort of complacency or blindness to consequences. That maybe all that they're really prioritizing is what I feel and what I want right now. So we have the story that when Esau is coming back from a hunt and he's physically exhausted and he says, I'm ready to die. I don't know. Is, is that even really possible? I'm not, maybe, maybe back in the ancient world, maybe he's been gone out for days and he's been chasing after antelope or something like that. Maybe he really is about to, you know, perish. Um, or maybe he's just about to pass out and he thinks he's about to die. We, I, don't, I don't really know how much exaggeration or how much truth that is. 
But when Jacob makes this outrageous request that he should sell his birthright for a bowl of stew, Esau justifies it in his head. And then he goes out and he acts like it means nothing to him. Like nothing really happened. I mean, never mind the fact that surely these are not the only two options that were available to him. You know, was there no one in his father's camp who had food available to him? Could he have not had said, Mom, <laughs> don't you have something to eat? Aren't there servants around? Or couldn't he call Jacob's bluff, so to speak? I mean, what would really happen if Jacob left his brother to die in front of him when he's got the means of saving him right there in front of him? All because he wouldn't sell his birthright? I mean, if he seriously did die, what would, what would his father say? What would, what would the community have to say about that? I don't think that, that would, he'd really be able to get away with that. But Esau, doesn't, he doesn't think ahead. He doesn't think about those things. It's just all about the needs or the desires of the moment. And so it's said that um, Esau despised his birthright. Or in other words, he didn't value the inheritance and the weight of responsibility that God had graciously given him as the firstborn. Now Isaac, on the other hand, he says that he loves the game that Esau brings home. And it's in the blessing story where he is telling Esau to go out and get some food and bring him back some, some game and prepare some delicious food that I love. And that phrase about the delicious food that I love or the delicious food that your dad loves is repeated over and over. So we learn from this passage by that um, evidently, um, I don't know, Isaac is, he's mostly blind and evidently he's bedridden. And it's like maybe that food is that the next meal is really the only thing that he's looking forward to anymore. And he's ready to die. And what you find out later on, as you go several chapters later, how sad it is to know that he has over 20 years left to go before he dies. It's, it's not until Jacob ends up going off to Laban's household and the whole thing with Rachel and Leah and having all of those kids and coming back and finally he's there and he's living in the land. And then it says that Isaac dies and Jacob and Esau bury him. So he's got 20, 25 years left of his life. And I know for him it must feel like I'm blind I can't do anything. My life is over. I don't know what, you know, I'm just, I'm just stuck in the emotion of the moment. But his life isn't really over. He's got so much more um, ahead of him. So that's um, Esau and Isaac. Jacob, on the other hand, is evidently filled with ambition and desire for what his brother has. And when he sees Esau in a vulnerable spot, he pounces on the opportunity. When his mom tells him to step in and steal Esau's blessing, the only hesitation that he feels is, what if I get caught? The sad thing here is that cheating Esau doesn't help if what he really desires is the love and approbation of his father. All of this conflict and manipulation comes with a scarcity mindset. For Jacob and Esau, there's this perception that their parents can't or don't have enough love for both of them. For Isaac and Rebekah, the perception is that there are two boys, but there's only one blessing to pass on. 
And it's true. The prophecy about the boy said that the eldest would serve the youngest. But that's not really part of the Abrahamic covenant, was it? The Abrahamic covenant was, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. That like all of his, his children would in some way be blessed. And there is one very specific blessing, the opportunity to be the great, 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 grandfather of the promised one, Jesus. There's that one specific blessing that can really only go one way. But the circumstances surrounding Isaac and Ishmael's birth are very different than the circumstances around Jacob and Esau, right? And even in the case of Ishmael, God still blessed him and promised to make him a father of nations. And in spite of everything, in spite of the fact that um, Esau really does not seem to care about following God at all. He's going, he's getting um, local pagan wives, and, and there's, there's really no indication that, that he um, cares about following God much at all. God, is, God still blesses him, and he still makes him a father of nations. So given what we know about this God, who is blessing their family right and left and center, not on the basis of their goodness or even their commitment to him in many cases, how tragic is it to hear Esau's tearful cry of, have you no blessing left for me, Father? Haven't you left anything for me? How tragic to see the withholding of love the lies and manipulation, the envy and conflict and murderous hate within a family upon which God has chosen to pour out his especial love and grace and blessings. And how tragic to see two sons who are both heirs of God's covenant with Abraham, and while they might understand the appeal of wealth and success, neither of them appears to have the slightest interest in knowing God. So I'm going to kind of skip over those stories about Jacob stealing the birthright and stealing the blessing, and I'm going to focus on the time when right after that, when <laughs> Rachel finds out, she hears through the grapevine that Esau wants to kill Jacob. He's just like, as soon as dad dies, oh, you're done. And so she tells Jacob and says, you need to get out of here. Why don't you go to my, go to your uncle Laban's house? you need to get a wife anyway. We'll come up with that kind of scheme. We'll tell your dad you need to get, you know, a a wife from our family circle or whatever, and so you should go over there, and then eventually your brother might cool off. And it's interesting to note that even though Isaac, we hear, is so fabulously wealthy, and Jacob technically is the new promise bearer for the family, his father does reiterate a blessing to him as he leaves, Jacob leaves with nothing but a walking stick and a big fat target on his back. As he sets off to go find a wife at Uncle Laban's and hopefully let his brother cool off, I wonder if he's thinking to himself, was it worth it? Was getting the birthright through manipulation worth ruining the relationship with his brother? Was getting those precious words of blessing spoken to him, but not knowingly, or willingly, worth ruining the chance of an actual close, trusting relationship with his father. The things that Jacob wanted were good things, but the methods that his desperation took him to come, or his, that took him to, came with a heavy cost. 
And that's really what sin does, right? It can take a desire for a good thing. It can drive us to achieve it through false methods until the good thing that we desired is made empty and worthless by all the big and little consequences that we accepted along the way. James 1.15 talks about, actually, James is talking a little bit more about evil desires, but James says, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. What Jacob doesn't know is whether or not he knows or cares anything about God. God knows everything and cares deeply about him. God sees his heart. God sees his desires and his sin. God sees his past, and he sees his potential. And it's out here on the road, away from all the painful mess that he was born into and contributed to, that God appears to him and makes this astonishing offer. It said in, let's see, which Genesis 28... Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up to the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This place is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he has this vision of, it says, a ladder. Some versions say a staircase. And if you, um, I've, I've read people say that really what they, the author is probably having in mind is talking about a ziggurat. Um, if you think about the Egypt, how they made the pyramids. Temples in the ancient Near East were ziggurats, they're step pyramids. So instead of being smooth sides, they're steps. And I, the last time that I taught, we taught on the, the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel was probably not a tower like we think of it. It was almost certainly a ziggurat um, because those were the kind of temples that that was, that was the symbolism of those, that they were reaching into heaven. And so it's, it's quite possible you think about this being like stair steps and the angels going up and down. It, that could have been what he saw. And so that's kind of like, and it's also the language that Jacob uses when he says, oh, this is the gate of heaven. Remember, that was what Babylon meant in their language. Um, it meant the gate of heaven. And God stands above it, and he gives them the promise about how he's going to be with him, and he won't leave them until he's accomplished all that he promised. Jacob's... Response is awe and wonder that God is in this place and he didn't know it. And all through the story, like later on even, Jacob displays this interesting awareness, an emphasis on cosmic geography, when he talks about God's house or the gate to heaven. And later on when he's coming back to, uh, to meet Esau, it says that angels meet him. And so he names the place two camps because he goes, oh, this is God's camp. 
So Jacob is having this awareness. What's going on is God is revealing that there is a whole spiritual dimension going on in the world around him that he is entirely ignorant of. And God's both revealing it to him and inviting him in. My perspective is that God is showing Jacob that he's not just being given a land that like, like people, when you talk about cosmic geography and ancient Near East people, they talked about, you know, they, they thought that um, if you have a certain country, well, the God of that country, that's their physical domain. And as soon as you cross over into, you know, another country, well, that's another God's domain. It's very territorial. And so, you know, God is God, is God of the whole earth. And so he's not just showing him, well, yeah, of course, here's, here's my connection to heaven or here's where, here's my house. But really, it's, it's almost an Edenic invitation to he's saying this if he's showing him this is this is where I dwell and I'm inviting you to live in this land I'm inviting you into it um it it talks about you know that's God's original intention to dwell with his people and unlike Babylon where people were building a tower to heaven so that it could be a gateway so that they could reach God here we see God revealing to Jacob you know, this, this ladder or these stairs, that he's revealing a connection to him. And it's interesting here, too, that God is not making any demands of Jacob at this point. He's simply making Jacob aware of the spiritual reality in which he exists. He's offering his own commitment to Jacob's welfare, and he allows Jacob to figure out what that means. Jacob's response the next morning is just classic. Like, he has this incredible vision, and it's sort of, and he has this, like, worshipful awe and and, um, fear of it. And then in the morning, all of a sudden, he goes, okay, God, well, if you can do all this stuff for me, and he mentions, you know, if you give me food to eat and clothes to wear and bring me back and keep me safe, well, then you can be my God, and I'll make make this your house, and I'll give you 10% of everything that I've got. All of a sudden, he goes back into this, like, salesperson negotiation mode. You know, it's like, is he really listening? (laughs) He's worried about having food and clothes and making it back safely. But, I mean, those things are covered under the promise. And the promise, the vision that God is showing him is so much greater. So as we think about how we see Jesus in the life of Jacob, um, I really think that it's meaningful to, to... think about that idea about God being where we are even when we're not aware of it. In, in this case, he's talking about in this place specifically. Um, Jacob knew about his family's covenant with God. And for Jacob, those promises were set across the reality of the brokenness he'd been born into and the sin in his own heart. You know, how, how could he really know the goodness of God? Hope, there's hope for us and for people who know, or that we know, who seem far from God. Because God is not simply in that place over there, and you have to travel to it, and you have to stumble across it. But God is with us. He is in our story, whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not. And there's also so much hope because Jacob's, in Jacob's spiritual journey, he changes over time. In Laban's household, he learns to trust God because he learns what it's like to suffer opposition and injustice, but with God at his side. So Laban's deceit is totally irrelevant. Jacob comes out, he comes in with just a walking stick, right? That's all he's got. 
And he's thinking, well, here's a family member, surely, who's going to take care of me. And unfortunately, that wasn't how it worked. But Jacob comes out as a people group, and he comes out wealthy. And he's, in, in essence, he's really plundering Laban of all that he has, including his household gods, as his wife makes, um, <laughs> takes it upon herself. So that he's left with, he's, he's got nothing. On the way back to meeting Esau, he's terrified, but it's in his prayers that he acknowledges his fear, and then he sets it against the backdrop of what God has promised. He says, look, God, I'm, I'm so scared of this. I'm so afraid of what, what Esau's going to do to me, but you promised me. You promised me you'd bring me back safely. And then as he wrestles with this unknown figure at night, he holds on for God's blessing through a process that involves being honest before God about who he is. And he ends up receiving a wound that in many ways is also a form of healing because he walks away being forced to lean on something, someone other than himself. Now that isn't to say that Jacob never repeats the sins of his fathers. He too engages in favoritism that leads to a lot of conflict in his household, as we're going to find out next week in the story of Joseph. But with God at his side, God anticipates those things, and he ends up using it for good. For good, and we're going to see that in Joseph, right? He uses it for the good, not just of his family, not just for Joseph, but for the good of, of the world. And in Jacob's old age, there's a, it's, if you look forward, if you go skip ahead to the part where he, is, um, he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, those are Joseph's two children that are born in Egypt, kind of adopts them. And then he takes all of his other sons, and it says that he blesses each of his children with the blessing appropriate to the child. He no longer has this sort of, like, like Isaac had, of, well, I have one blessing for you, and oh, sorry, I got nothing left. I gave it all to him. Um, instead, and, and that's not to say that he doesn't recognize with, um, with his eldest son, Reuben, he goes and really screws up. That kind of, that kind of wrecks it for his, for his blessing. But, um, but he blesses each child with a blessing appropriate to that child. And as we look at Jacob's story, we see God's grace all over it. And that's really where we see Jesus, right? We see that God comes to us and is close to us even in our sin. He comes to be with us in our darkest moments of need, not based on our merit, but on his goodness. And this is Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. And it's in John 1:51 when Jesus is having a conversation with Nathaniel that basically he, he reveals to Nathaniel that he is Jacob's ladder. He is that connection. So he talks about how um, the angels ascending and descending upon himself. Very explicit um, reference where Jesus says, that was me in that story. We don't have to guess about that. Jesus actually tells us that. And there's also this mysterious figure um, that Jacob wrestles with and um, it's really very interesting, that, that whole story with that, um, because in Jacob's blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, he, he says in there um, something about the, the God of Jacob. Here, let me look it up. This little insight is from, is from the, the, inside, the Unseen Realm by um, Michael Heiser, but it's not necessarily his idea. This is something that... Um,
ready to talk about. Okay. His blessing, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who shepherded me all, the day, all my life unto this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, may he bless the boys. The parallel position of Elohim, God, and Malak, angel, is unmistakable. Since the Bible very clearly teaches that God is eternal and existed before all things, and the angels are created things, beings, the point of this explicit parallel is not to say that God is an angel. On the other hand, it affirms that this angel is God. But the most striking feature is the verb, may he bless. The he, in Hebrew, the verb bless in this passage is not grammatically plural, which would indicate two different people are being asked to bless the boys. Rather, it's singular, thereby telegraphing a tight fusion between the two divine beings on the part of the author. So that's a little clue, and you know that, that really dives into the weeds of, um, of the Hebrew and all of that. But there are all of these clues in Genesis and in the Old Testament where God ex puts these little tantalizing clues for, for Jews to look back into and to go and realize, wait a minute, there's, there's God the Father, but, but who is this other figure? Who is this person? And it's something that, that actually in the intertestamental period, um, they came up with a theory for, to try and explain that, and they called it the two powers um, model. And what it, it was this model of thought of saying that, well, there was God, there was God in heaven, but then there was also this, this other figure who shows up throughout the Old Testament. And they couldn't really explain it, but they just said, well, there's these two powers. And what, what was so great about it is that when Jesus came in the time of the early church, that made it so easy for Jews to be able to go and say, oh, this Jesus, when he says that he's God, ah, that explains it. That completely goes along with this idea, this theory that we've had all along. And so it either made it really super easy to accept Jesus as the Messiah, or it was something that was such uncomfortable evidence that that whole theory within Jewish thought was declared to be heretical during, like, the Middle Ages. And we don't hear about it anymore. Um, so Jesus is just all over through this story. And Nancy Guthrie ends our chapter by pointing out that the defining moment in Jacob's life, the one that transformed him from being Jacob to Israel, involved the chance to meet, but not exactly to see God face to face. And she says, But the day is coming when Jacob and all redeemed rascals and sanctified schemers will see God face to face in the light and live. So let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the, the rich, rich treasures that you have for us in this story. And we thank you, God, that Jacob is so relatable in, um, in his struggle, in the mess that he's born into, in the way that you meet him in the middle of that mess. God, we thank you so much for your grace, and we thank you for coming to us through your son, Jesus Christ, and showing us who you are and showing us your goodness, even when, um, even when it's something that's just beyond our frame of reference. Thank you for being a part of our story, even when we don't recognize it. And I pray that you would begin to, um, that this week that you would give us an increased awareness of just exactly how you are a part of our story, of how you are blessing us and, um, 
even in times when it feels like a struggle. And we pray for our friends and family members and coworkers and people we know who may seem very far from God, who may seem like they are um, like the only time that they really talk to you or deal with you is in a fight, is in wrestling. And we pray over them, God, that, um, that you would just continue to be present, that you would continue to be good, that you would continue to reveal yourself to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.